Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, grab a Bible, get with to Philippians chapter 3 with the, me this morning. If you need a Bible under a seat close by, I think uh, in the Bibles under the chairs, this is somewhere around page 982, but get a copy of God's Word in front of you as we study it this morning. And while you turn there, let me ask you a question. Um, who's, ever been, who's ever been to another part of the world that has a vastly different culture than the one we're used to here in America? So maybe third world country, maybe you've been somewhere and um, uh, the Caribbean, or you've been overseas to Africa. My first experience with this um, was I was 19 years old. It was a trip to Kenya, East Africa. And so remember the plane ride over, remember how excited I was, and um, we got into the airport, and we got our bags, and, and I remember, I can still see walking out of the airport in Nairobi and realizing instantly that this 19-year-old was not in America anymore. I mean, just a vastly different culture was apparent right away. And I, uh, that kind of excitement I had while sitting on the plane, it, it quickly turned to a bit of, uh, I was nervous. This was all new. This was all unknown. This was all a little different and, and, and if I want, a little scary in parts. And then I remember the bus ride from Nairobi um, into kind of the little village in uh, the east part of Kenya where we were going to be uh, uh, spending the week and about two hours on the bus ride. And just my eyes glued out the window at how the people of Kenya were just doing life from the people in Ni- the big city of Nairobi and then into the rural areas of Kenya and watching kind of the, 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 the places that they called homes, seeing them go about their daily life, watching the women carrying the water on their head, wanting to try that myself. And here's the thing. I was fascinated by it. But the Kenyans weren't. That was just a normal day for them. And there's something that's true as we all step into vastly different cultures than the one we're used to. We quickly realize we are not citizens of that culture. We are, we are foreigners. And if you've ever been to a place like this, you quickly feel like a foreigner. You feel a bit like an outsider of this culture looking in at what day-to-day life looks like for the people who are used to being citizens of that culture. Now, I'm using this word citizen intentionally. And let me define so we're all on the same page what a citizen is. A citizen is a recognized inhabitant of a state or commonwealth. A citizen is a recognized inhabitant of a state or commonwealth. I'm, I'm a citizen of this culture. I kind of, in, in ways that um, we don't even realize, we're, we're influenced by the fact that we're citizens of a certain culture. Uh, to say it like this, where I declare my citizenship will directly determine my desires and decisions. And so the question that God's going to raise for us today is a really, really, really important one. He's going to ask us flat out, where do you declare your citizenship? And now if you're um, maybe a little more familiar with the Bible and Christianity and walking with Jesus, you kind of know where this message is heading. But if you're newer to this whole Jesus thing or the Bible or Christianity, you're going, what do you mean where do I declare my citizenship? I'm an American. Or, or, or I'm, I'm, whatever, I'm whatever nationality that I'm from as I sit here. Um, the Lord's going to go today, yes, 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 but more than that. Where do you declare your citizenship? 
God is going to go, what if my people have a citizenship and a commonwealth or a kingdom that transcends any, any commonwealth, country, or culture here? And in the beginning of verse 20, where we're going to go today, he says it like this. But our citizenship is in where? It's in heaven. So the question for us today as we get into this passage of Scripture is, what in the world does it mean that we are a people whose citizenship is in heaven? What in the world do kingdom of heaven citizens look like in day-to-day life? And then here's maybe the most pointed and convictional one for us. Does my life reflect someone who has declared their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? We ready for that? Let's pray. Father, come now and speak through your word. Um, We desperately need to hear a message like this because, Lord, we live within the context of a culture of here and now. Um, Lord, it's really hard for us in the day-to-day to to, um, lift our eyes up, get them vertical, and remind our hearts that we are not citizens, ultimately, of the here and now. And Lord, I believe that your word's going to teach us today, if we can grasp in our heart that our citizenship is in heaven, it will drastically affect the way we go about living on earth right now. And so, Lord, as we do every Sunday, I beg for your spirit now to come and remove barriers and obstacles that are in the way of our hearts to hear clearly from your word the message you have for us. Your word is a feast to our soul, and we walk in as famished, hungry people. And so, Lord, would your spirit help us feast on your word right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Get to uh, verse 17 with me in Philippians chapter 3. Remember where Paul has just come. Remember kind of these three theological terms we laid out last week. Um, um, Paul's like, I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect. I'm not with Jesus. Perfect glorification hasn't happened. But guess what? What did he say? I press. I press on. I want more of Jesus manifest in my life right now until that day I'll be with him. And I'm pressing on and I'm pressing on and now a really important word about how we go about pressing on for more of Jesus. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating who? Join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, I just want to stop right there, give you the first point, pull the first principle out of verse 17 right here. I must lean into and learn from people living like citizens of heaven. I must lean into and learn from people living like citizens of heaven. Um, Look at what Paul says. This is a really important principle Paul gives here. He says, join in imitating me. You better be pretty confident you're getting after the Lord before you say something like, join in imitating me. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And then he says something so important for us. Um, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your what? Keep your what? 
Keep your eyes. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is really important. Paul just said something that we can't miss. He just told us there will be people whose walk with Jesus is, an, is, is exemplary. That's a big deal. I know it doesn't sound like it, but that's a big deal. There will be people in living out, walking out this life whose walk with Jesus is exemplary. And this is what Paul is saying here. Philippians, listen to me. You're going to be surrounded by a lot of people and a lot of influences. I need you to get your eyes on those who's who's walking out their walk with Jesus in an exemplary way. Not exemplary doesn't equal perfect. It's just exemplary. And Paul says, you can join in imitating me. You can keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. But Paul said, get your eyes. Watch those walking this Jesus thing out in an exemplary way. Here's the question he's asking us. Who are you watching? Who are you watching? You're like, I'm, I'm watching Jesus. Great. Awesome. But who are you watching in the here and now? Who, who's the spiritual mentors you have in your life? Who's the, who's the influences on a regular basis that are spurring you on, who are saying, follow me as I follow Christ? And um, I think it's really important when we answer the question, who are we watching? Who do we have discipling us? Who do we have as spiritual mentors? Who do we have pouring into our lives on a consistent basis? I think it's really important that the answer to that is um, twofold. Someone and the right someone. Let's start with that someone piece. I think... In our culture, what's we kind of become the norm is um, we tend to view a Sunday service like this or an event or a program that we go to as discipling us. And that's true and it's right and they're good. Um, but here's something we like to say around here all the time. Programs don't disciple people. People disciple people. Disciples make disciples. And so when we think about when Paul's saying here, follow my example, get your eyes on those walking out the example you've seen at us, he's saying, who are you watching? Who's helping you in your walk with Jesus Christ? Who are your spiritual mentors in life? Um, And so the answer to that hopefully is someone. We all need someone fulfilling that role. And then let's talk about who the right someone is. Three things to look for in a spiritual mentor. Um, Number one is this, and it's right from the text, is um, someone who has an exemplary walk. Notice that word is not perfect walk. In fact, let me guarantee something for you. Be careful on guarantees, right? But let me guarantee something for you. Seth comes up to me and he says, hey, Brock, uh, you know, you preach this. Hey, will you, um, will you be kind of a, a term we use during the Proverbs series? Will you be a lattice looker in my life? Will you be a spiritual mentor? Will you disciple me? Can you pour into me on a regular basis? Um, um, guess what I can guarantee? The closer Seth gets to me, the more my flaws and sin will be, become more apparent to Seth. I can promise you that as you have some people walking out and say, like, you know what, I do. I need a spiritual mentor in my life. I need someone I can look into. I promise you, as you get closer to that person, you're going to go, oh, there's some flaws there. 
And guess what? As people get closer to you, they're going to go, ooh, there's some flaws there. The word is exemplary, not perfect. The word is like as you look at the, the, the wide body of work of someone's life, Maybe it's in your workplace or in your family or someone you've just been able to watch for years. Or You go, the overall body of this guy's work, like his children seem to love him still. And they seem to respect him still. And his wife is filled with this joy. Like that might be a guy I kind of want to hitch my wagon to and go, can I just, can I learn from you? Can you pour into me? Can we do life together? Find someone exemplary, and exemplary does not mean perfect. Number two is this. Um, find someone with margin to disciple you well. Here's what I mean by that. Um, some of us, and I hope, I hope the application for some of us walking out of here is going, I need to get someone to disciple me in my life. And some people are going to come to mind, and you're going to go up to them, and you're going to say, hey, so-and-so, hey, would you have time for us to meet on a regular basis, for you to mentor me, for you to pour into me? Um, I want to be obedient to what Paul was writing to the Philippians. I want to keep my eyes on those who are walking in the example of Christ. Can you be that? And some people might reply like this, I would, have, I would absolutely love to do that. But here's the deal. I still got like three kids at home, and most of my discipleship energy is poured into those kids right there. And I'm already discipling someone. Uh, we get together once a week, and I would absolutely love to, but I know how much time and energy it takes to do well. Can I help you find someone who may be in a better season to walk with you through this? Don't walk away with your head hung from that. Walk away going, that person loved me enough to tell me they don't have the bandwidth right now to disciple me well. Find someone with the margin in their life to disciple you well. And then this is really important and really convicting for me as, we, as I think about the way I've discipled people and I haven't lived this out well. Number three, find people who will invite you into their life. Here's what I mean by that. So often when we think of discipleship, spiritual mentor relationships, we think of it as like a cup of coffee for 45 minutes a week. And then guess what? I'll see you at the same time next week for a cup of coffee in another 45 minutes. Like imagine what Jesus, if Jesus would have said when he went to his disciples, hey, come follow me. And that means a cup of coffee for 45 minutes a week and then I'll see you at the same time for another cup of coffee for 45 minutes a week. When Jesus said, come follow me, what did he mean? Come follow me. Drop the nets. Here we go. Where are we going? I don't know, but where I'm going, you're going. Find someone who will invite you into their life where you'll get to see when they and their wife or they and their husband have a little spat and how they resolve that. Where you get to see the kids just absolutely out of control and this person, this spiritual mentor that you have so much respect for going, I don't ever really know what to do at times like this. 
Find someone who is not only going to open up 45 minutes of their schedule to you, they're going to open their life up to you. Because so much will be taught to you over 45 minutes and a cup of coffee, but so much more will be taught to you over them opening up their life to just say, here it is in all its rawness. And so why why am I talking about this? Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Who are you watching? Who are you watching? Who are you following as they follow Christ? And now, um, I want to show this a little. So, uh, Daniel, I'm putting you on the spot. Sorry. I trust our friendship. So come on up here. Um, um, Joe, can you come up? Um, and if you don't, you're fired. So, um, <clears throat> um, I love you. Um, I believe I believe that uh, God has wired us to grow the best when we're living in what I call the middle third. The middle third. Uh, when we're living in middle third relationships. What do I mean by that? Um, I believe God has wired us the best um, when we. When we are living in relationships um, where we have someone out in front of us who's pouring into us, that God has wired us, to hear this now, I think God has wired us to grow the best in groups of three, to personally grow the best in groups of three. When we are firmly planted in the middle, when we have someone who's out in front of us in their walk with Jesus, And then when we have someone that God has, because God has designed every disciple to be a disciple what? To be a disciple maker. When we are firmly planted here, and when Daniel, here pour into my cup, pour into my cup. When Daniel is pouring into my cup, okay, that's good. And then I'm passing it on to Joe. I believe God has designed us to grow the most when we're living in the middle third. Now, what about Daniel? God's designed Daniel to grow the most when he's living in the middle third. When a guy like JC or Dan or Mark is on the other side of Daniel and Daniel now finds himself. And um, God has designed Joe to grow the most when he's living in the middle third. When there's someone pouring into his cup. And then he's like, I, yeah, I'm new. Maybe I'm new at this whole Jesus thing, but that, there's someone. I'm going to go find someone. So thank you, guys. Those cups are my gift to you. Um, <laughs> God, God has just wired us to grow the most when we are living in middle third relationships. Now, some of us in here need to ask the question, um, who, are you in, who are you sandwiched between in life? Um, do you know why the Dead Sea is dead? Do you know why the Dead Sea is dead? Someone tell me who's way better with these things than I am. Why is it dead? Yeah, there's nothing flowing out of it. We always think to grow, I just need this guy. I just need this woman. If I'm going to grow, I just need this woman. God's like, no, 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 no. If you just get all of that pouring in and nothing pouring out, you will never grow to the max that I've designed you to be. So I just, who are you watching? And then let me flip the question. Who's watching you? Parents, look at me. Before you think who's watching me and it instantly goes to the, the young guy at work or the young woman at work and that's all good. Let's get them in discipleship relationship. Do not neglect the fact that there are two, four, six little eyes 
watching you all the time. I love the way God lays out Deuteronomy 6 about parenting. Talk about it when you get up and when you lay down and when you walk along the way. Parents, um, you are the primary disciplers for the children God has entrusted into your home. And do not, um, do not subcontract that out to someone else. We have student ministries and we have um, kids ministries for the primary purpose of coming along the parents whose primary job is to pour in to the kids that God has brought into their home. I just asked the question, who are you sandwiched between? Who are you watching and who's watching you? God has designed us to grow the best in the middle. Third, I'm, I must lean into and learn from people living like citizens of heaven. Now, let me keep this sentence going. Because, why? Why is this so important? Because I live surrounded by enemies of the cross. Now, that sounds a bit firm. Why? Look at what verse 18 says. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, What's the next three words? Say it loud. For many, I'm coming back to that. Uh, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Paul goes, guys, listen to me. Philippians. Like as I get to this part in my letter, I'm digging the pen quill into the paper a little bit more firmly. Why do you have to watch? Why do you have to get your eyes on those living out this kingdom of heaven citizen thing? Because you're surrounded. Many around you are living as enemies of the cross. Many around you will live out this, I don't, I don't care about Jesus. Some are angry about not caring. Others are just indifferent. I just don't care. I'm going to live. I'm, I'm living for the here and now. And Paul says, let me give you a profile of what these enemies of the cross look like. Number one is this. They're on a path toward destruction. Please don't just sweep that under the rug. It's just right there in the text, right in front of us. It's a hard truth, but it's nevertheless a truth. Verse 19 starts, their end is destruction. What it means is they are on a path whose final destination ends in destruction. Um, It goes on to say their God is their belly. What in the world does that mean? Number two, they're controlled by the feeding of their appetites. Just means enemies of the cross, people who have firmly planted their citizenship in, in, in something of this earth. All they want is the next fix. The next fix, just immediate gratification, whether that's um, sexually, whether that's materially, that, whether that's food, whether, any sort of pleasure. They're just like next fix right now. They're just, their God is their belly. I'm just living for my pleasure in the moment, right now as we speak. Number three, uh, they brag about what God says is shameful. They glory in their shame. Scroll down social media timelines. And how many are just glorying and bragging and boasting about what God is looking down at and shaking their head and just going, 
That's shameful. They glory in their shame, and they set their minds, they set their minds on the temporary here and now. Paul is imploring the Philippians, get your minds on those living as kingdom of heaven citizens because you'll be surrounded. You'll be surrounded by people living as enemies of the cross. And he's like, you have to find someone walking out this Jesus thing exemplary other, or, or you're going to be influenced by these enemies of the cross in ways you don't even know they're influencing you. You're going to be sucked into living out this profile we just, just gave here in ways that you can't even see at the time. And so it's clear to us that Paul is teaching that these enemies of the cross and the way they live are not the exemplary models we're to follow in living like kingdom of heaven citizens. But I want to come back to something before we just leave it and go on. Verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, next three words, even with tears. Like, we got to get there right now. We got to see Paul writing this. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I don't want to lose you here. We got to get there right now. We have to see Paul writing this, and we have to hear the teardrops hitting the page as he writes about people who are enemies of the cross. I don't think that the tone here is Paul railing and just ripping these people. I think he is broken. I think he is broken about the reality that all around him and all around the Philippians are people living as enemies of the cross whose final destination of the path they're walking, to use his words, is destruction. And I just want to ask our church this. Are we broken for those far from God? Are we really, really broken for those far from God? And how do we know? Because it's really easy, I think, for us to sit in a church service and go, I am, I am, I am, I am. I feel bad. I feel bad when I think about them. Brokenness over those who don't know Jesus must surpass a bad feeling about them and must motivate us to getting, stepping in front of the path they're walking and goes, can I tell you a message of good news and of hope of one who loves your soul more than you even know? I want to challenge our church to something today. And um, this, is very, this is a very positive thing. I'm going to unpack for us. Um, it's no secret to you guys that in the first two years of our church, the Lord has grown our church pretty miraculously in a way that only he can. And um, since two years ago at this time, um, we've tripled in size. Now, I want to show you something about that growth, okay? This is good, by the way, and I'm going to explain why. If you can't read that, that 80% in green, that says transfer growth. 
What that means is that 80% of the people who now call Harvest their church home were directly involved in another church before they made Harvest their church home. 12% of people who now make Harvest home were what we call maybe de-churched. In the three to five years before they came back to church through the vehicle that God made here at Harvest, they just weren't plugged into any sort of home church. About 8% of our growth in the first two years were people unchurched. Like, no Jesus, no Jesus, no church in my past, just like totally unchurched. Um, in church planting circles that I run in, what do you think church planters say to me about this? Huh? You can be honest. What do you think they say to me? Sheep stealer. You're, you guys are nothing but sheep stealers. That's all you're doing over there. Um, I, like, I completely beg to differ. Do you know what I think God is doing? I think what God has done in the first two years of our church is he's brought to us a really, really solid foundation of hungry and healthy believers. Our prayer was, Lord, don't, don't let people just come here because there's a new thing in town. Call people. Call people. Who are you calling to be a part of the work you want to do in and through Harvest Bible Chapel? Call people. And I think the Lord has answered that prayer. And I think that 80%, God's like, I'm doing something here. I'm laying a foundation. I'm laying a foundation. Now, here's the challenge. Next, next, uh, next graph. If the next two years of harvest, no, go back to that one. If the next two years of harvest look like this, we got a problem. What's the problem? Like if God keeps growing the church, what's the problem? No, if the next two years looks like this, we got a problem. Because what it means is the mature disciples God has brought in the first two years have not been mobilized to go make more disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ. Next two years, here's the prayer. 90% of our growth has to be from unchurched and de-churched people. 10% of the people are going to transfer. They're going to come. They're going to go, man, I just sense God calling me over to this. But how do we flip the script? How, how do we become a people? You know how... Um, as I think about those who are enemies of the cross, I do so even with tears. We will never flip the script until uh, the Spirit of God burdens the people of God for those who are far from God. We will never flip the script until the, the Spirit of God burdens the people of God for those who are far from God. And some of you right now are going, yes, yes. The focus of the next two years, and it is, um, we're going to get focused on reaching people far from God. And guess what? Nothing changes about how we go about doing the way church, the way God's called us to do it. The only thing that changes is our focus on reaching people who don't know Jesus personally by making disciples. And I just want to challenge us in the next two years with what's ahead and in this next year and just in the days ahead. Um, as we launch into 2018, we're going to begin a verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is really very simple. It is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the first Jesus followers, making disciples here, near, and far to the glory of God. That's all it is. Acts 1-8 is the cornerstone verse of the entire book. It says, but you will receive what? 
Come on, you will receive what? We've been commanded by God to go and make disciples. And he's like, oh, by the way, I've given you some power to go do it. But you've received power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, here, and all Judea and Samaria, near, and to the end of the earth, far. The book of Acts is just a story of the power of the Holy Spirit through the first Jesus followers to make more disciples for his glory. And guess what? The story of Acts was never supposed to end. It's supposed to go on and on and on and on and on. So healthy, hungry, foundational base in the first two years of Harvest Bible Chapel, uh, 2018, is all about mobilization. The army is here. It's time to get after it. With the lost neighbor, the lost coworker, the lost family member, the lost friend. And then you're like, okay, um, what, what outreach ministries are we going to start in order to reach them? None. <laughs> you are God's outreach ministry. That's convictional about us. What events are we going to have? You are God's event. Walk next door and invite them to dinner. There's your event. <laughs> well, then what's going to happen after like, we share the gospel and they get saved? We certainly are going to start a program from that. No. You are God's program for that. Say, hey, do you want to come back next Sunday night for dinner? And then do you want to come back next Sunday night for dinner? And oh, like, there's a book in this by, it's called the Book of John. And frankly, I'm going to learn a lot about it as we study. Do you want to study it together? Let's just read a chapter a week, and when we get together, let's talk, let's talk through it. I'm pretty jazzed about 2018. <laughs> Anyone else? Why am, I, why am I talking about that? Don't, don't divorce it from the text here. When Paul gets to talking about enemies of the cross, he says flat out, for many of whom I often tell you and I'll tell you, even with tears, I'm broken, I'm burdened. Paul's given his life to reaching them so much so that it's left him in a prison cell right now. I must lean into and learn from people living like citizens of heaven. There's a discipleship aspect. Because I live surrounded by enemies of the cross, we're talking reaching new believers there. But, 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 number three is this. I declare my citizenship is in heaven, and I eagerly await the return of my Savior King. Look at what he says here to finish this passage. Verse 20, he's just talked about enemies of the cross. He's just laid out the profile of what they look like. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's sweet. Don't just skim through that. That's sweet. You're like, I'm, I'm missing the sweetness. What's sweet about it? Um, our citizenship is in heaven. When I hopped out of an airport in Nairobi, Kenya, I went, I'm a foreigner here. If there's ever been any part of your heart that's gone, I don't feel like I completely fit here. Guess what? It's because you don't. Your heart has been hardwired for a commonwealth whose king is Jesus Christ, where he's reigning perfectly, where his kingdom has been established perfectly. And until that day, we say, Lord, may your kingdom come. 
may your will be done on earth. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, hear the longing, hear the longing. From it, we await a Savior. Hear the longing. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Hear the longing. Here's what people living for the here and now, enemies of the cross, just just living to feed their appetites, just the, the next fix, the next craving, eyes fixed on the world and everything they can get out of it. And then Paul says, but our citizenship, we're not a citizen of that. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we long. We long for the return of a Savior King who's going to transform this lowly body. Come quickly, Jesus. Into the image of his glorious body. This drastically affects how we go about living here. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Anytime C.S. Lewis said something that you're going to say, say what C.S. Lewis said. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this. Get your eyes on the other world. Get your eyes on the coming kingdom. Fix them on the coming king. And until that day, say, Lord, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I just want to hear, I just want to tell you, if you're in here, and you sense there's something in your heart that can never be completely satisfied by anything this world has to offer, it's because it can't. You've climbed the ladder and you're sitting on top and you're going, huh, it just didn't do what I thought it was going to do. You're making the money. You set out as a 20-year-old to make in a year. You've doubled it and you're like, it's good and I praise the Lord for it, but there's still, it, it just didn't get all of my heart like that. Guess what? It can't. You, your heart is awaiting and longing for the one that it was created to know and to love. And the next time you experience this deep dissatisfaction with something you thought would bring you satisfaction, don't hang your head depressed. Smile and go, Lord, thank you for the reminder that my heart's just been longing for you. So if you would just stand with me right where you're at. Um, This is why, this is why I'm convinced that when we worship, watch this, watch this phenomenon. When we worship and a song, and a song gets to a place where we start to sing about Jesus coming back, or a song gets to a place where we start singing about eternity, when, we, when a song gets in the, to a place where we start singing about his kingdom that is to come, the intensity of the worship increases every time. You're like, oh, it's because they, 
I know no musical terms. They like, they build it there and it's just emotional. No, it's not. There's something about when we start singing about eternity that our heart inside of us goes, yes! Yes! Sing about that. Because it's like when you sing about that, that's what I've been longing for, that you've been trying to fix with all these other things, but it's that. Just keep singing about that. So let's sing about that. <laughs>